Instagram this week as I was finishing off this message. It's been 10 years in the making, and it has. Uh, but I'm going to start off with a video this evening because it's just helpful to have some context around what it is that I'm going to bring out. So if, for those of you that don't know, we've had a very long, 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 long visa journey. And uh, we recently got some significant breakthrough with that. And so what I'm going to talk about tonight comes out of that, out of our journey, out of kind of looking back. It's been quite a cathartic process for me to kind of look back and think about actually what has God done and what has he taught us and how is things, what has he solidified in our lives because of what we've been through. And so I'm going to start off with a video tonight for you to just kind of see a little bit of the story that's going to come out this evening. So kind of if you can play that video, that'd be awesome. You might not believe it, but everybody got a story to tell of circles, circles, round and round they go. At night if you're crying, feeling like you're going through hell, that's just circles, circles, round and round they go. He's a God of the circles. He's a God of the ups and downs. And nothing new under the sun. Nothing new to the sun. He's a God in the trials. He's a God in the meltdowns. And nothing new under the sun. And nothing new to the sun. Go through circles Round and round they go At night if you're crying Feeling like you're going through hell That's just circles Circles Round and round they go He's a god of the circles He's a god of the ups and downs And nothing new under the sun Nothing new to the sun He's a god in the trials He's a god in the meltdowns And nothing new under the sun And nothing new to the sun We all go through circles Go through circles. 
can't escape the circles Ooh, oh, oh, oh. We all go through circles Yeah Round and round we go Now, you can tell I'm working on my perfectionism because I left that bit in at the end where I nearly misspelt granted as gratinated. So that's a big growth for me, guys. Just so you know, I was like, do I need to do the entire thing again? No, 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 no. It's okay. I can, I can work with that. And I show you that story because it helps to give the context of what it is that I'm going to talk about tonight. Four things. Four things that we have learned, four things that we have struggled with, four things that we have journeyed on. And I pray that they really help you this evening. I pray that the truth of it sinks into your soul. And that whether you're struggling now or whether you're going to struggle with something in the future, that encompasses all of us, that you will hang on to what it is that God reveals to you tonight. I'm going to talk about what my journey is, but there'll be something in it that the Holy Spirit wants to direct to your heart this evening. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you need. And so let's pray this evening as we get into God's Word together. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're in the room already. Thank you that you're softening hearts. Thank you that you care about every single person and what they're going through. Thank you that you're faithful and you never, ever let us down, even when it feels like you do. So, Father, I pray that as I speak truth this evening, that truth will overcome lies, that courage will overcome doubt, God, that hope will overcome hopelessness. And then this evening, you accomplish what you want with this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when I was um, a teacher, one of the things that we had was the fire service came in. And um, one of the things that they started with is a nice little test that we're going to do together. And it's a little phrase that you all know the answer to. And it says, a practice makes... And he was like, wrong. And we were all like, oh, you're telling the teachers that we're wrong. And he was like, no, practice makes permanent. Because if you're practicing something the wrong way then you're just going to make it permanent. So it depends on whether you're practicing something that is correct as to whether it's going to be perfect or not. And so what we've found is that over our journey, there's been an awful lot of practicing. 
an awful lot of getting it wrong and an awful lot of God trying to make something permanent in our life, something that we can hold on to, a foundation and an anchor for our souls. And so I'm going to share four things that we really found were attacked in our lives, four lessons that we really had to learn, four truths that were um, came, that came against, that the enemy tried to take out and we had to really reestablish And so the first one, the first thing that kind of really gets attacked when you're on any kind of long journey, and ours was a visa journey, but it could be anything for you. It could be long-term health conditions, praying for a family member to be saved. It could be unanswered prayer. It could be a child that's away from God. It could be anything, whatever it is. There's a thing that you're going through right now that kind of have popped into your head right now, that thing. And in the middle of that circumstance, what's going to be attacked is God's goodness. The enemy wants to come and he wants to attack the grasp that you have on the goodness of God. I'm going to share some verses this evening that that were really key for me. But what I want you to do is, if this verse that I'm going to share doesn't kind of like spark something in you and you think, oh yeah, that's it, then just go away and Google verses on the goodness of God because there's a whole load of them and find one, read through until something arrests your spirit and you're like, that is it, that's the stake that I need in the ground because these are very personal to me, these are my uh, things, my verses that I held on to but you're probably going to look at them and be like, well yeah, whatever (laughs) because it's personal to me so go away and do your own Google and find your verses. But the verse that was really important to me was from Psalm 27 and 13 that says, I'll be confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Goodness is part of God's very nature. Psalm 119 verse 68 just puts it brilliantly. It says, you are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. That's just really simple. It's just a very concise thing about who God is. Goodness is not just something that God does. It's who he is. It's part of his character. It's part of his nature. He cannot not be good. And so when the goodness of God comes under attack in your life, it's an attack on your very grasp of God, your very understanding of who God is to you. And in the beginning, when we go back into Genesis, when God's talking and everything that he makes, he calls good. And then when he gets to humans, he says it's very good. And if we were going to look around our world at the moment, I'm not sure any of us would be like, the world is very good right now. <laughs> it's, it's very not good. Can we agree with that? There's some good things happening. But when you look at what's happening with Afghanistan and just the different things, the global pandemic that nobody saw coming except for Jesus and all of those things, we'd be like, oh, not very good. And it's easy when we live in a world that bombards us through the news and social media and the content that we consume, that bombards us with not good all the time. It's very easy to take that not goodness and to place it on God and for it to color how we look at him and how we see him. And it's really easy for us to start thinking, well, if God is so good, then why? If God is so good, then how can what's happening in Afghanistan be good? How can we look at that and, be, and, and say that that's good? How, how can a loving God allow that? We can look at our own lives and be like, how can God allow this in my life if he's so good? This does not seem good to me. How can this circumstance have any good out of it? And I learned a really important lesson 
is that we see in part. We see in part. And if I think that me, in all of my 37 years of wisdom and life experience, understands and can comprehend what a God who is eternal, was never created, who is just the most incredible being that ever was or ever will be. If, if I'm thinking that I can look at what he is doing and, and I can understand his goodness, then I'm kidding myself. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of up the paddle without, a, like, no, up the creek without a paddle on that because I, I see in part... I don't even understand myself properly sometimes. I wake up, I'm just in a cranky mood for absolutely no reason, and I have no idea what's going on inside me. And yet somehow I think that I'm able to judge what is happening and and make some judgments on the world and what God is doing and his intentions. And when we're thinking about God's goodness and an attack comes on God's goodness, really what the attack is is on his intentions and his motives. Because we start thinking, well, why would God do that? Why would he allow that? If he's really good, then why would he allow this to happen? And I know that in this room, there will be very real, horrible circumstances that you could say that about in your life. If God's so good, why didn't he stop this? Why did he not intervene? And we can take that question and then at the base of that, undermine the goodness of God And it's important to know that we don't actually know what God's goodness looks like. We don't. In eternity, and when I'm sure when we get to eternity, there's going to be a nice big class where we all sit down and maybe God goes through whole of history and he's like, look, look how I weaved it all together. And at the end of that class, we will go, God, you're so good. You're so good. I didn't see what you were doing. I didn't understand what was happening. But as I look at it from the eyes of eternity, I can see that actually, God, you are good. And you did good. And it was good. But now we can't see that because we see in part. And we're flawed humans. And we see things through our own eyes. And we don't understand the whole context of things. And so it's difficult for us to know what is good in a circumstance. And God knows the end from the beginning. And so if you're in a circumstance where the goodness of God is being challenged, where an attack is coming against your understanding of how can God be good if, then let me encourage you to be humble and to, and to have humility in it and to not let your heart get hard and for you to keep a soft heart and say, God, I see in part, I don't understand it's very confusing. I can't work out how this is good, how you're going to bring good out of it, why you've allowed this to happen, but I trust you. And that's a really difficult thing to get to because you have to hand over your, your trust into, uh, does God actually care? Does he, are his intentions and are his motives towards me good? And the Bible says they absolutely are every single time that he works all things together for the good of those who love him. All things, not like the good things and the nice things and the, you know, semi, semi-nasty things, but all things, the most horrific things. If you love Jesus, he works it together for the good of those who love him. And that leads us to the second part that gets attacked when you're going through a long journey is God's sovereignty, which is his power and his authority. 
And the verse that really helped me was in Proverbs 21 where it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wants. Or sometimes it says about rivers being directed. And for us, when it felt like somebody else is in charge of our life, that was a very comforting verse. Because I was like, no, 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 God's in charge. And long roads challenge God's sovereignty, his power, and his authority. Does he actually know what he's doing? Because when, you, when you're in a short-term circumstance, you're like, and then you get a, like a quick result. You know, when you, maybe sometimes when you're a baby Christian and you're going through something and you're like, God, will you really help me? And then God's really gracious and he comes through super quick and you're like, awesome. Because you need that kind of encouragement when you're a baby Christian. But as you go along, sometimes there's long circumstances where the, the answer doesn't come. And it doesn't come for a long time. And it's not that you've stopped asking or you're doing something sinful. It's just the situation that it is. And the questions come, does God actually know what he's doing? Does he understand? Is he actually able to make circumstances change? And the attack comes on the truth that God ultimately is in control. God is ultimately in control. Now, depending on your theology of sovereignty, you'll kind of rest heavier or lighter on this. And you can argue it both ways from the Bible. So it's not a right or a wrong thing. I tend to lean a bit on the heavier side of things. But the the base truth and the sovereignty of God is that if you are a believer, then God is the ultimate authority and power in your life. He has the final say. It may feel like in your life, somebody else has the final say. A boss has the final say. Maybe your youth leader has the final say. It may feel like a parent has the final say or a job board or, you know, the interviewer has the final say or any number of things. When we come to something that we want and somebody else, it looks like they're in charge of opening or closing that door, it can, it can feel like, well, they're in control of my life. If they say yes, I'm gonna, it's going to be the best day ever because I've got that job and I've got what I wanted. If they say no, I'm going to be down in the dumps, it's going to be terrible, I'm just going to have a really bad day and eat all the chocolate and ice cream and do all the good things and tacos probably, that would help as well. But when we behave like that, when the outcome and and our emotions depend on what somebody else says yes or no to, then what we've done is we've placed them as a higher authority than God. We've placed them as the ultimate authority. If if you really believe that a, a boss can stop your job progression, then you've placed them above God. If you really believe that somebody can say no and the calling of God can be stopped or inhibited or changed on your life, well, then you put that person above God. And Pastor Mark does the best message I've ever heard on authorities, and you should go back and listen to it on the YouTube channel. But basically, it depends on where you place God in that hierarchy of authority. And if you don't understand that he is at the top and he's not moving, he's always been at the top and he is ultimately in control and he's okay with that. But often we are not. Often we think it's somebody else. And if it feels like a person or a circumstance is holding the keys to your life or stopping you progressing or a yes or no from them can make or break the trajectory of your life, then you've missed it. You've missed the sovereignty of God and you need to grasp that truth that God is in control. It's just not true for believers. 
might be true for unbelievers, but for somebody who loves and knows Jesus, God is the ultimate authority in your life. He holds the keys. He holds your life in your hands. He can open doors that no man can shut. He orders your steps, the Bible says. He knows the plans and the purposes he has for you. And you can rest in that. You can rest in the fact that actually it's not up to somebody else to say a yes that opens the door, but it's what does God say. And so for us in that story, like us feeling at home when we put our, literally we put our feet in the car park in Brisbane, which is very unglamorous. And like, I smile at it every time we go past now. I'm like, oh, it's a home bit. Because we put our feet on it and we were like, we're home. It's such a bizarre feeling because I'd never been here in my entire life. And I was like, I don't want to go to Australia because seeing all the scary videos on YouTube about huntsmen dropping down from the wind, like the wind visors and snakes and kangaroos punching people and wet koalas and just all the horrible things. I was like, I'm not going to go. And then it's so far. And then I was like, who can afford? Because I was like, you get really bad jet lag when you go is what everybody said, even though we've never had jet lag. Thank you, Jesus. But like when, you know, it's so long to come. And then I was like, well, you know, you have to have to like three weeks holiday if you're going to get here. Well, who can afford to have three weeks holiday? Not us. So I was like, we're just never going. It'll just be one of those places that, you know, when the Lord makes the new heaven and the new earth, if Australia is still there, I'll just go see it then. And then all the koalas will be nice and all the snakes will just be lovely and they won't bite you. And I'll just, you know, go see all the sights and the new heaven and the new earth and it'll be great. And so... When we, when we came, that, that gift of feeling home, we needed that as the sovereignty of God, that God had said we were going to be here. God had given us that gift. God said, you know, and when we'd had miracle after miracle, that, you know, in, in one of the parts we had, were in the UK and we're waiting to come back, and, and God did a miracle, like a literal miracle with an email that came through at the 11th hour and all different things. And that gave us the handle on, actually... The visa department, they're doing the paperwork, but it's God that's in control. And if he wants us here, then he wants us here, and he will make it happen. And so we had lots of very clever people who were helping us, but ultimately, it's God. And if God wanted us in Australia, then we would be here in Australia. And on the other hand of that, if he didn't, well, then you don't want to be in Australia. (laughs) You want to be where God wants you to be, so it's win-win. So when you get onto the sovereignty of God, when you, when you lean on that, then you actually can't lose. Because whatever God has for your life is what you want. So, you know, if you're going for job interviews and you're like, I, I always think this is a great thing to pray for job interviews. And you're like, I don't know if it's the right thing. You just pray, God, if this is you, swing the doors wide open. If it's not, slam them closed. Make it really clear. And it's a super safe prayer to pray that I think God actually loves doing that because then it's like, okay, the door's opened. Great. I know this is of you. And so I'm going to work at it until tell tell me to go somewhere else. I'm going to accept this gift and I'm going to stay here until you say move and I'm going to do something else. And if it's not for you, if they said no, then well, then God didn't want you there anyway. And he's got another set of people that he wants you with. And so do you understand what I'm saying there? It's the sovereignty of God that you need. That's the thing you have to hold on to. The third thing that gets challenged, oh, hang on. Yes, the third thing that gets challenged is this, God's timing. Mm, Yeah, we all love that one, don't we? (laughs) God's timing, which is really his plan and his purpose. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this, he makes everything beautiful in its time. 
which sounds lovely, but in reality, it really sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> it's really, really hard. And I think, it's, I think that's made worse by our societal conditioning because we are, we are being trained to be impatient and to want things quicker. I found myself being really impatient on TikTok the other day because it was a one-minute video. I was like, get to the point. And it's like, this is a one-minute video. TikTok has trained me to have the attention of 30 seconds. And if it's longer than 30 seconds, I'm getting frustrated. But in fairness, it was a dog, and it was really cute. And I was like, just, they were waffling. I was like, just show me the dog, like, at the end. We're being conditioned. You get, we did have afterpay, you know, where you get what you want now, and then you pay for it later. I saw an advert this week that was like a prepay thing. So you don't have the money in your account, but you can, get an adva- you can advance your pay to you if you want something, so you can get your pay ahead. And I was like... The world's gone insane, insane. That's just such a bad idea. Don't do that. I think afterpay is a bad idea. You save up and then you buy it. That's what my mum and dad taught me. And we've done that, not with small things. We've done that with cars. We've done that with big things. We're like, okay, you want a car? We'll save for it. And then you buy it outright and then you own it. It's good. Anyway, so that social conditioning, that impatience that we have, that I want it now, and waiting three minutes in front of the microwave feels a long time. You can go and like, you know, dust your skirt in boards and do some things while you're waiting, which is how we do things in our house. We go and do some cleaning while the microwave's waiting to ding. We bring that into church. And we bring it into our relationship with Jesus. And we do things like that. I didn't feel anything in worship this evening. I didn't feel anything. As if I was feeling something is the, the measure to which success of the service is. I didn't get anything from the preacher this evening. Hopefully you won't say that tonight. But I didn't get anything from the preacher this evening. It wasn't really worth the investment of my time. As if my consumption is the highest measure of success when I come into church. I haven't cultivated deep, meaningful, wonderful relationships that I see on social media where we all just sit around a fire and it's greatness. I haven't, haven't cultivated that because I've been going to life group for half a year and I don't have that yet. As if us getting what we want of all of our time is our desires, that's the goalpost of relationship and that's the goal. It's not. Good things come to those who wait. Good things come to those who wait. When we first came to Australia, we were very lonely. Just super lonely because we've left everybody that we've ever known. Even really coming to a merged church, like when the church is merged, even then there was a measure of loneliness. Because everybody that we've ever known lives in the UK. I'm an introvert. It's not easy to make friends, right? I'm also an Enneagram once. So it's even more difficult because I mistrust everybody. And then it's just really difficult. Hard for me to make friends. But we ask God, God, would you give us friends? Would you give us family? Would you give us friends that become family? And then I got really upset with him when it didn't happen, like, immediately. But it's timing. Good things take time. 12-hour ribs taste amazing because they've been cooking for 12 hours. If you eat two-hour ribs, shame on you. Two-hour ribs are rubbish. Things that take time have the good stuff in them. That's why slow cookers, your mums love slow cookers because they put everything in and then it tastes great at the end of the day and they did nothing. Time makes things better. 
And I'm really not sure that my timing and God's timing is ever matched up. When I was trying to think back and I was like, when have I asked for something or I thought that something was a good time and God agreed with that and gave it me, I honestly could not think of anything. I thought, well, maybe, maybe it was when I met Neil. You know, maybe Neil was, because I wanted to get married young. I was like, no, even that, because I went into Bible college and I was like, no, I was being really like overly spiritual and holy, right? <laughs> so I just broken up with somebody and I was like, I'm going to go to Bible college and I'm going to give a year to Jesus and I'm just not going to date anybody and it's going to be so good. Just me and Jesus for a year and we'll journal and it'll be awesome. And then Neil walks in and I was like, no, come on. He is so handsome and Scottish and and he, I know, and he, he, this, is, this is Neil's moves, right? So I met him at a youth camp before we went to Bible college, and he emailed me a book list, which for me was so hot. I was like, oh, a book list? Who is this guy? It's like heaven's gift to me, because I love books that Jesus knew. I asked for somebody with an accent. And he gave me a Scottish person who loved books. But that wasn't in my timing because I was like, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, have this whole year and it's going to be awesome and everything. And then, and then Neil was there. And so we went and talked to, so you have to know this, young people. I did not just jump in and be like, oh, look, it's Neil, amazing. And we're going to go out. We wrestled with it for about two weeks. <laughs> and we prayed and we fasted. We did all the things that you should do. And then we went to talk to some of our, like, our friends who were older, who were like a married couple, and they were awesome. And we were like, what do we do? Like, we both love each other, but Neil had just come out of like a relationship where he was engaged, and I just come out of a long-term relationship, like long-term, it was like six months or whatever. And we were like, what do we do? And they were like, well, if you're going to try and concentrate on Jesus... Having somebody that you really fancy walking around in front of your nose for the next year. Because it was residential, so you see them at breakfast, lunch, dinner all day. Like, all day. They were like, you're not really going to concentrate on Jesus very much, are you? So you might as well just go out with each other, and then you probably concentrate on Jesus more. We're like, that's great advice. So that's what we did. <laughs> so that's what we did. Then we went to go see the dean, and he was like, come back when you want to get engaged. Because you had to go ask permission. But it was timing. It was God's timing. And it, the reason why I think our timing and God's timing doesn't often match up is because we have an inability, to go back to the first point, to see what's truly good for us. It's really difficult for us to see that because we think we know what we want, but actually God knows what we need. And he knows the time in which we need it. And we think we understand that, but we absolutely do not. And so either we trust that God knows the end from the beginning and that he will bring every good thing to you when it's the right time, or you don't. And if you're in the don't category right now, if you're like, I don't actually believe that, well, good on you for being honest. Because there's times when I have sat very much in the camp of, I don't actually believe that God's timing is, is any good. Because it's really confusing, particularly when you're in the before bit. When, you, when you're just over the line of God doing something amazing, then that's the moment of absolute clarity and you're like, well, I can see it all now. 
I can see God's timing, and it's wonderful. But literally, it's like a clock, 11.59, and, and like just right up to that point, it's totally confusing, and you can't see what God is doing. And then as soon as you get over the line, you're like, oh, of course God knew what he was doing. Of course God's timing is perfect. And I think we often, we lose our way, and we get confused on the timing thing, because it is confusing. Because we're trying to understand and comprehend a God who is outside of time. A God who actually knows what he's doing, who's weaving everything together for the good of those who love him. And so it is pretty normal for us to find his timing confusing. And it's a confusing part of being a Christian, I think. But sometimes God will give you a little glimpse where he'll, he'll do it in somebody else's life. And it's like a little, it's like a little teaser. It's like, oh, he can do it for them. And I believe that he's going to do it for me. And you've got to trust in that moment. The fourth thing that gets challenged on long roads is this. God's sufficiency, his completeness and his fullness. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, With you I lack no good thing. And we've sung it this evening. We've sung, If the signs don't come, God, you are still enough. More than miracles to me, Jesus, my everything. And this, for me, was certainly the hardest one to settle. I've told you before about the story of, you know, thinking about becoming parents and the struggle that we've had with that and just that whole journey. And then God taking me to better is one day in your courts and a thousand elsewhere and really challenging me. Julie, am I enough without this? And I couldn't say yes. It took me many months where I could get to a place where I was like, God, you are enough. I'm going to have to die to my dreams, my desires and my plans. And God, actually, you are enough. If we never have children, that's okay. You are enough. And on our visa journey, it looked a little bit different because what I grieved I worked out halfway through, I was grieving stability. I was grieving certainty. Because when you can't buy a house and you can't plan and you can't do all these different things that you just take for granted in your normal life when you just live in a country and it's your country, there's a stability, there's a, there's a certainty, there's a long-term planning. And I'm a one, so I love planning. I love lists, I love control, I love working it all out. And all of that just felt like it was on a tray and God had thrown it up in the air. And it was like, not that it came back down, but it was just up in the air. And I was like, right, this is going to come down anytime soon. And it just didn't. It just stayed up in the air. We'd given up well-paid jobs, our entire family, all of our friends, our house, our possessions. And secretly, what I felt like was God owed me. I felt like he owed me for that. Even though he... He'd asked us to do it, and I was like, yes, okay, we'll do it. But then I felt like he owed us something for doing it, <laughs> which is ridiculous. He doesn't. We, you don't owe God anything. But I grieved the certainty that I felt I was owed due to our sacrifice, and I learned a hard lesson. God owes me nothing. He owes me nothing. He's complete. You don't have to give me anything, ever. And he would still be good, and he would still be God, and he would still be enough. So he doesn't have to do anything for me to still be God and still be worthy of worship. He can just be himself and he would still be worthy. He could never do anything for any of us ever again and that would not change one iota the, the glory and who he is and the fact that he is worthy of worship. We don't worship him because of what he does for us. We just worship him because of who he is. He's just sufficient and amazing. And halfway through, God spoke to me clearly and said, I haven't promised you, Julie, plain sailings 
or a certain or a stable journey. He said, Julie, I've just promised me, I've, he's just promised me his presence. That's all he said. I promise you my presence. And that has to be enough. And it was not enough. It wasn't. I was like, well, that's nice, but it's not enough. <laughs> Thank you very much. I would like my certainty, and I want to buy a dog, and I want to buy a piano, and I want to have a house, and I want to do this and do that, and I want to have my plan. And God was like, well, let's just throw it up in the air, and let's just leave it there until you can work out, Julie, that you actually don't need any of those things. What you need is my presence, and that has to be enough. And it got to the point where I was like, right, well, if we forever live with uncertainty, that's okay. Because God's presence is enough. So we bought the dog and we bought the piano because I was like, well, if, if uncertainty is what it is, well, then that's what it is. And we'll just take the dog with us and we'll just take the piano with us and we'll just, we'll just do what it is. We'll just do those things. But what that was is it was a dying to self which is a long and painful process because we're all used to getting what we want and sacrificing your desires is not pleasant. It's not a fun journey and that's the point of it. And if you want to get really good at that, get married because marriage is just a long journey of you sacrificing what you want for somebody else and them sacrificing what they want for you. And that's a good marriage. And so if you want to get really good at that, just get married to the right person. Otherwise, they're not sacrificing for you, and it's not fun. But that sacrificing, that dying to yourself, is hard, difficult, messy work. It's hard to die to yourself, because yourself is nice. You like it. That's why you get up every morning, and you, and you eat, and you go to work, and you buy nice clothes, because you like yourself, and so you should. But when it comes to spiritual things, having to die to what it is that you want is difficult. And I think on this one, we never win the war on this. I think we'll struggle with this till the minute that we meet Jesus. And then, we'll, then our self will be dead and then we'll just see Jesus and it'll be worth it. But I think along the way, we have to battle with, I just have to get rid of what it is that I want. Because I need Jesus more. Jesus is more important to me. But let me encourage you that that fight is worth fighting because what had a hold on you before, when you die to yourself, it doesn't have a hold on you anymore. So certainty and control had a hold on me before because I felt that I needed that. When I put that to death again and again and again and again and again, what happened was there's a freedom in that where I don't need certainty. I don't need control because actually I know that Jesus is enough. God is enough and he captures your heart and he becomes the completeness and the wholeness that you thought you needed in something else. Now that'll look different for all of you. Mine was control and certainty and having a stable life, but it'll be different for you. There was something because all of us deal with this. But if you can settle that God is good, that he is sovereign, that his timing is perfect and that he is enough for you, then I promise you this, there is no storm too wild, no road too long, no problem too complex, no unanswered prayer too great that can shake the foundation of your faith. Because those things are foundational. And if you're in a time of shaking, it's time to grab hold of those truths that God is good, He is sovereign, His timing is perfect, He is sufficient. Those are the things that come and the attack comes against that. And like Pastor Joe said, 
with Jesus holding his hand out to you, he's not, he's not letting go. But it's our responsibility to grip onto him. And in times of trial, that's what we have to do. We have to grip onto Jesus. And it's difficult and it's hard and it's messy work. And that's why we have the church, because you need other people around you to help you, to encourage you and say, listen, sink that anchor of your soul a bit deeper. Dig that foundation a little deeper so that you can know Jesus. It's rare, I wonder if the bank could join me, the good times teach us about these four attributes. I was trying to think in my life when I've had a really good time, if, if one of these things, I've, I've learned it, and I, and I didn't. I've, I've enjoyed it, but it's the hard times that teach us this. It's in the tests, in the questions, in the problems, in the long-term situations. That's where growth comes. That's where depth is dug where foundations are laid and strengthened, where anchors of the soul are sunk, and where we learn to trust in a God that is bigger than our understanding. When we went um, on our honeymoon, we were married 15 years, and so we went on our honeymoon, and we were super, super poor because we were just out of Bible college. We couldn't really afford anywhere. Uh, so we went to the travel agent, because that's what you did back then, and you went and talked to a lady. And I was like, where's cheap? And she was like, Egypt. And I was like, great. I was like, why is it cheap? She was like, well, there's just been a bombing there. And I was like, <laughs> she's like, so nobody wants to go. So it's super cheap. And I was like, is it safe? And she was like, well, it's safer than it was before the bombing because all the army's in and the police are in and they're checking everywhere. And I was like, we're there, we're going. So we got this two-week all-inclusive thing like, uh, my poor mother, I, I, yeah, my poor mum. So like we, we, we got this really, really cheap holiday. And because uh, we were just out of Bible college, we were like proper Bible nerds. And so there was a day trip. You could have gone to go see the pyramids or we could have gone to go Mount Sinai. Well, we just spent three years studying Mount Sinai and everything about it. So I was like, sack the pyramids. We're going to Mount Sinai. So off we go. And um, I learned a few things. One, I thought it was like desert. You know, when you hear about the Israelites wandering through the desert, I thought it was like sand. It's not. It's really rocky, like super rocky. And um, the second thing I learned was that uh, uh, deserts are really super cold. And our tour guide did not tell us that. So I was like in shorts and a vest top. And it was, it was like the elevation's really high. So then we got fleeced by these people who knew that we were going to be in shorts and a t-shirt. So we got like these things to wrap up because it was so windy and like super, super cold. And then um, the third thing that we learned was that we were in, Mount, like, in the monastery. There's a monastery up at the top of Mount Sinai where the burning bush is supposed to be. And, um, and there are all these like artifacts and fragments of scripture. Like, and we've learned about this for three years. And I'm there with my, my enormous digital camera because it was huge at the time. And we were like taking pictures and these monks came up to us. And we're like, no, they're going to ruin it. We're like, oh, okay. So we're taking pictures of the Bible that we just studied for three years. It was great. And then the fourth thing that I learned was that you would think that in, in a desert, nothing grows. It's not true. Things grow in the valley. So when you're on the top of Mount Sinai, what you can see is that in the valley, there's like little tracks of green. And it's in the valley where things grow. And that's because the water goes from the top of the mountain, then it goes down and then it pools in the cracks and in the crevices. And then things that are very hardy are able to grow in that circumstance. And I learned these two things. On the mountaintop, that's where you, you see the overview. 
You see the perspective. You get a chance to see how far you've come. And that's why Summit's important because it's a mountaintop experience. Like Joe said, we gather together and we see where we've gone and we look to where we're going. And it's a corporate experience that if you're not there, you're going to miss out on. I'll just say it straight. You need to be at Summit. And we have this mountaintop experience where we can see things and you can see for a long way. But it's in the valley. It's in the valley where the deep and hidden places where the rain finds the cracks and the crevices and it brings life from unexpected places. And so in your valleys, in your difficult places, in your unanswered prayers, in your feeling like you're going round and round in circles, circling anxiety, circling depression, circling joblessness, circling your family not being saved yet, circling the things that are so precious to your heart that Jesus knows, circling around those things, Those are valley times, but it's in the valley where the green is. It's in the valley where things get watered. It's in the valley where things grow. And long roads bring faithfulness, endurance, and patience. And what's happening is that Jesus is transforming you to be more like Him because He's faithful and He endures and He is very patient with us. So as you close your eyes, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit. I want you to ask Him right now, which, what do I need to do? I've heard a lot of things tonight, Holy Spirit. What do I need to do? What truth do I need to grab a hold of tighter? What anchor do I need to sink a little bit deeper? What foundation do I need to dig a new level to? Is it the goodness of God? Is it God's sovereignty that He truly is in control? Is it His timing that may feel really confusing right now, but I promise you it's perfect? What is it? Is it His sufficiency that He has to be enough? Just Him, only Jesus. And that thing that the Holy Spirit has just spoken to you about, I want you to commit to do the hard work. I'm not going to do an altar call this evening because it's, none of this really gets fixed with a prayer from somebody. It gets fixed from you working it out with Jesus. It gets fixed from you going home and Googling verses about the goodness of God. It gets fixed for you every morning waking up and saying, Jesus, I don't really think that you're enough for me today, but I'm going to declare the truth that you are until you are. So the Holy Spirit, whatever He's revealed to you, I want you to commit in your heart and say, Jesus, I'm going to do that. Thank you for showing it me. And I'm going to do that in Jesus' name.